0: When did you come to your realization that things were really changing?
1: I wanted to see if I could make television journalism the way a print journalist makes print journalism. I went to live in a Palestinian refugee camp in the Gaza Strip. Most modern media, particularly social media, is generally used for crap. You know, selfies and influencers and games. And there are some people who are using modern media for uh, the common good. The technology is liberating in a way. But the trick here is how to take this and turn it into money, because if there's no money, it's a hobby. This is Podcasting with John Metaxas.
0: Hello and welcome to today's podcast. My guest today is Michael Rosenblum. He's an evangelist of new media. He blogs at VJ.com. He also podcasts, puts out videos. Michael, you're a renaissance man of new media. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me over for this. We should tell our listeners that uh, you and I go way back to journalism school. Yes, that's right. I can barely remember. <laughs> we were the class of 1983 at Columbia Journalism, and urban legend has it that ours was the last class to be trained on manual typewriters. I still use a manual typewriter, so I never really got into the electric thing. But I think you and I also have something else in common. We both cut the cord in the last year. Oh, yes. I actually had a satellite, but now I have internet television Tell me why you did that, and, and what does that tell us about where we are today in modern media?
1: Well, you know, I mean, uh, television, the entire industry, the media industry, is really a child of technology. Most other professions, technology is a, a tool that they use, medicine, law, stuff like that. But our industry is one that is really driven primarily. The technology comes first, and then the application comes later. So there was no radio before Marconi. And there was no television before, well, John Logie Baird, in my opinion, who invented it in Britain. Philo Farnsworth? Uh, <coughs> yeah, maybe. He yeah. <laughs> stole the ideas. But um, the uh, – the, if I mean, first came broadcast, and we only got three or five channels, and then came cable, and we got 500 channels, and that was pretty much what television was. But, of course, that was linear, and it was you watched what they wanted to show you and stuff like that. The advent of an Internet that's capable of carrying – video, which is essentially what it is, and and broadband, which puts it in your home without any delays and stuff, makes cable, linear cable, pretty much obsolete. It takes time for industries to die. Radio is still around despite the advent of television. But when you compare the advantages of um, a nonlinear world in which you can pretty much watch whatever you want, whenever you want, and with things like Netflix for a one-time fee, uh, it makes paying $200 a month for cable seem a bit crazy
0: and limited. You were actually ahead of the curve years ago. Uh, you've had many jobs over your career. Yes. One of them was founding the uh, Internet TV operation for The New York Times. Yes, right. Uh, when did you come to your realization that things were really changing, and, ha- and how did you do that?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting.
0: When I, Of
1: course, I graduated with you from journalism school, and we all needed jobs. So I got a great job at WNET Channel 13, the public television station here making coffee and slicing bagels. (laughs) I was called associate producer, but I didn't really have any responsibilities. And that was based in Newark, New Jersey. So I spent about four or five years there. And the great thing about being in Newark was that they left us alone. So on my own, I started to make little documentaries from our 6.30 a.m. Saturday morning talk show about New Jersey affairs, but they didn't really care. And in the course of that, I think I won seven or eight Emmys, um, local Emmys, and I got picked up by uh, the network, CBS, and I got hired to be a producer at Sunday Morning, the Charlie Corral show. And I spent two years working with Caroll and CBS Sunday Morning. I was a great gig, but you went all over the world. But for the first time, I was dealing with unions and crews and cameramen at Channel Thirteen. I could do anything; they just left me alone. But suddenly, there were union rules about you know shooting and editing. And also, I worked for the first time with correspondents and reporters, people who made a lot of money for doing nothing, in my opinion. I went out, I found the story, I did the interviews, I wrote the scripts, I gave them something to record. And I think it it reached a nexus for me when um, one of the pieces that we did won an Emmy. And at the Emmy Awards, this highly overpaid, um, semi-literate on-air talent stood up and said, I wanna thank all the people who helped on this. And so there was a guy making a million dollars a year or more for doing nothing, and there I was making about $100,000 a year for doing everything and getting no credit. So I thought, screw it, I'm not doing this anymore. So I quit and uh, my, I wanted to see if I could make television journalism the way a print journalist makes print journalism or radio journalism makes radio journalism or a photojournalist makes photo journalism They go by themselves and they take the tools with them. In those days, television used very expensive beta cams that cost eighty or or $100,000 and I couldn't afford one. The only thing I could afford was this little home video camera. But I bought that um, and... Uh, I went to live in a Palestinian refugee camp in the Gaza Strip, and I moved in with a family for a month. It was the first intifada. And every other television network was sending crews with Israeli film crews and military guards and doing conventionally. They do a stand-up at the Ares checkpoint and, you know, t- how dangerous it was, and they'd show kids throwing rocks, and they'd go home. Instead, I moved in with a family in the Jabalia refugee camp, and I lived with them for a month, and I just recorded everything that happened. And the fact was that no one else did that, so they got to trust me, it was, a, I don't mean, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but it was sort of what David Halberstam did in Vietnam. He sort of embedded himself in the story. And I was able to get fantastic stuff. After about a week or two, they really got to trust me, and they took me everywhere and introduced me to everyone. So I came back to New York with my pilot tapes, and I went to see Les Crystal, who was the executive producer of the mcneil lear News Hour on PBS. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. And I showed him my tapes, and he bought two stories for me for $100,000, which was... Pretty good. It was 50000 I can't remember. 50000 And that was pretty good for, you know, 1988 and, uh, and one month's work. So I thought, oh, this is not bad at all. He bought them from me because what I had done gave him a piece, and it was a lot less expensive than sending a cameraman, a sound man, a producer, an editor, the hotels, the meals, the airfares, the fixers, the cars. It was nothing. <clears throat> so he asked me if I could do other stuff. So I went to Cambodia, and I hung out with the Khmer Rouge. And then I went to Afghanistan, and then I went, and, and Ted Koppel picked up on me, and for Koppel, I went down and I found the Index Cades for AIDS in the CC Islands in Uganda. That took me about three months. So I was having a pretty good time as a freelance video journalist. Today, a lot of people do it. Then nobody did it, except John Alpert, who was with the Today Show.
0: So today, a lot of people do it. And as I said, you're an evangelist for the fact that this can be done, oh, yeah. but you came to it. From you know, a highly educated person, trained yeah. as a journalist yeah. at Columbia Journalism School, people are doing this democratically now with yes. no training.
1: Well, I'm not a big fan of no training. So after I had done it for about a year and a half, this Swedish billionaire named Jan Stenbeck found me. He's, he, if you ever read The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, he's in the book. He's the only real person in the book. And he was starting the first commercial television network in Scandinavia, and he said to me, um, he saw the economics of it, because I'd gotten rid of all the costs. And uh, he um, said to me, this seminal question that sort of changed my life. And he said, can you teach other people to do this? And I said, any idiot can do this, with the caveat that you have to teach the idiot. So um, uh, he, he, um, I was living in Brooklyn, and I'll walk up, and I uh, went back to my— in those days, Brooklyn was a dangerous—I think I was paying $320 for an mm-hmm. apartment— <laughs> And I uh, went back home to Brooklyn. About a month later, his lawyer called me, and he said, Mr. Stenbeck wants to form a company with you. He'll capitalize it with a million dollars and give you 30% equity. I said, I said sign me up. So I, I went to Stockholm. I lived in Stockholm for two years, and I Stenbeck sent me to Bergen, Norway, to build the first of these stations based on this concept. No one had ever done this. So I found 30 young journalists, and we were going to go on the air in a month, and I had to get them all prepared. I mean, they didn't know anything, and, and so... I had to get them prepared, so I had to create a curriculum to teach people to shoot, cut, edit, script, track, and report perfect. I mean, it was going to go on air. Everything had to be perfect. So I started to create this curriculum, which is one that I still use to this day, and we ran the first of these boot camps, which I've now run for 31 years, and it worked. Then we did Stockholm, Stavanger, Norway, Denmark, Copenhagen, Aarhus, and then I got a call from Time Warner, and they were going to start a 24-hour news channel in New York, and they said, can you do here what you did in Scandinavia? And I went, yeah, so we did New York 1, and then Channel 1 in London, and then they started to build these things all over the world. But the key here is always in the training. It's, uh, the, the analogy I make is that the technology is liberating in a way, but it's liberating the way the invention of the printing press was liberating in, in 15th century Germany but you couldn't go pass out pencils to every peasant in Germany and say, now write novels. You had to teach them, really educate people to be literate. And so what we've done over the years, whether with corporate clients or regular people or foundations or NGOs, is we run these boot camps of this day, we're running one in March, in which we teach people this very circumscribed method of learning how to do video journalism, which is very different in a way because it's a highly visual medium. And when we start the courses, I always tell people, you need to forget everything you know or you think you know. If you've been to journalism school, if you've been to film school, if you've worked in the industry, I need you to forget everything because everything you've been taught is fundamentally wrong. And I teach a very, very different way of, of approaching stories, shooting them, thinking about them, crafting them, producing them, and finishing them, which works extremely well. But saying they're wrong uh, tends to annoy people a lot. I taught at our alma mater for eight years and I uh, used to start every class by saying, I need you to forget everything every other faculty yeah. member has told you. And <coughs> After eight years, they threw me out of the school. And um, Imagine that. Well, it was, it was fi- actually, uh, it's a funny story of this because I actually ended up dating one of my students who I ended up marrying. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Steve Ross, who was the associate dean he said, uh, he said, we don't care what you do with the students, but you can't go around saying that everything else we're teaching here is wrong. I said, but Steve, it is wrong, and it was wrong,
0: and it remains wrong. And uh, that is now your wife, Lisa?
1: No, 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 that was Glenda, who oh, I divorced I'm sorry. after 10 years. Do not marry your students, kids. It's a big mistake.
0: Okay, because <laughs> I, I was going to segue into the fact that you're teaching a course at Oxford yes, with yes, your wife, that's Lisa.
1: That's right, I'm with Lisa. Lisa, I met one of the clients I picked up was the BBC, And I spent five years with the BBC commuting every week from New York to London. And uh, I trained 1,400 BBC employees to shoot, cut, and edit their own stuff. So we took the BBC from fielding 64 crews to fielding essentially 1,464 crews. Well, that was a quantum shift in what they were able to do. And what that does, in in my opinion, and we can talk about a lot of these things, is it, it gave them what I call freedom to fail, in the normal television and media world, you can't make a mistake. So everything is very conservative, and people get very nervous, and they do kind of cookie-cutter stuff. And that's why television news stories all look the same, because they're done in this very formulaic way. But unleash 1,400 cameras for an hour-long broadcast. You can have a journalist who wants to spend three months working on one story, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't make any difference. So Lisa was running. She was, a, uh, she was an on-air talent and then a, 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 an executive at the BBC, and she was running the program with me. And so I ended up marrying her, and yeah, we've been together for 15 years. Well, congratulations. And, well, thanks. And we are teaching a course at Oxford University. It's the first time Oxford has done it. I had actually been going to summer school at Oxford for six years, studying modern European history. And about the third year, because I'm fairly entrepreneurial, I started to approach Oxford. And I said, well, we could teach a course here in filmmaking. I'm sure you guys would really like it. They have no film department. They have no media department, anything like that. So we have to... Three years of, of, of approaching them and arguing with them, they finally, after two and a half years, they accepted us onto the faculty, which was a, a coup in itself. And then they accepted the course, but they said that you know they want to appeal to a more popular general population. Filmmaking would be great. But they didn't have a film department to affiliate with so we're affiliated with the religion department mm-hmm. at Oxford, which is somewhat appropriate. And after they accepted the course, they said we want to, it was called iPhone filmmaking, and they said we want to make one small change. And they said, we'd like to call it Using Modern Media for the Common Good. And I thought, well, you know, this is uh, much more interesting in a way. So that's the course. It's uh, July 30th to 21st. There's only one space left. It filled up quite quickly, which is a nice thing. And I've been looking at, uh, i had never really explored this before, how most modern media, particularly social media, is generally used for crap. You know, your selfies and influencers and games and stuff like that. And there are some people who are using modern media for uh, the common good, and uh, that's what we're going to explore. It's Mm -hmm. it's an interesting opportunity.
0: I want to talk more about that. I've been teaching at community college, and I have 19-year-old students who are YouTube entrepreneurs. They could teach me a lot of things. This Hmm. whole new generation gets it. Yes. Let me quickly ask you, does this development, all these developments we're talking about, mean the death of the traditional journalism job? Yes. It's
1: not the death of the tra- well, it is the death of the traditional journalism, but, but journalism, like every industry, is undergoing constant change. And I always say when we get involved in these things, if there's no revenue, there's no journalism. And one of the great faults of the journalism business, particularly in this country, is that journalists have been inculcated with this notion that making money is a bad thing. You know, we, from the beginning, we learn our job is to afflict... Church the, and state. Well, besides church and state. It's, it's this antipathy we have towards anyone who makes money. There's something evil in it. There's something wrong with them. It's, you know, to... Uh, it's, it's the quote from H.L. Mencken, to uh, afflict the... Comfort, uh. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Correct. So we all think... And if you look at any movie, it's interesting, any Hollywood movie about a journalist, they're always like three days shaven. There's alcoholics. They drive crappy cars. But they're driven by their passion for truth. And you never show them going to Goldman Sachs and, yeah. and, and making a partnership. So hand-in-hand hand with the, the transformation of conventional journalism was a very messed-up system. It was messed up because... The technology meant that the, the power to communicate ideas was in very, very few hands. You know the famous quote, freedom oppresses those who can afford a press. Mm-hmm. Well, up until about 10 years ago, the only people who could afford a press were a handful of extremely rich people. And now anybody can afford a press.
0: And, and, and this podcast— Uh, will get immediate worldwide distribution, which 20 years ago was not possible. Yes,
1: but the trick here is how to take this and turn it into money. Because if there's no money, it's a hobby. A nice hobby, like YouTube is a nice hobby. There's 1.9 million people, sorry, 1.9 billion people who are on YouTube every day or periodically. But do you know how many, of all the years YouTube, do you know how many YouTube millionaires there are? You read about them all the time. In the 10 years only 32 right so it's kind of a mythology
0: and what has happened to tv viewership over the last 20 years
1: well television viewership has it depends how you define television i think conventional cable and broadcast has of course declined particularly in the news business with the exception of mr trump who's proven an anomaly but video viewing has gone up astronomically the average american now spends an astonishing 11 hours a day staring at screens eight of those hours a day watching video or television. It's all the same thing. So it's a very, very powerful, addictive medium that's at the nexus of our culture. But until journalists learn how to make money out of it, and, and being an employee of the, of the New York Times is, is a dead-end profession, in my opinion. You're basically a, a slave of, of Mr. Sulzberger.
0: And yet the Times... And the Washington Post have had a renaissance of sorts in the last couple well, of years. Well, the Post,
1: because because Bezos invested money in and the right. Times, I'm not sure the Times had a renaissance. I get the the paper copy, and it's like it's three pages now. Right. And no so you, you think
0: that's an outlier?
1: Yeah, I think it's an anomaly. I think most conventional media is is in very, very serious financial trouble. And the models that have come up so far for new media, like um, uh, Huffington Post and stuff like that, have all gone broke. They're, they're laying off as well. They don't make any money. Because... They refuse to grant, there's this church and state thing, which is an enormous mistake. The the, the uh, Money has to come first, and then the journalism can follow, but people always do it the other way around. Oh, I'll write a great novel, and then everyone will buy it, and then I'll have a lot of money. It's a crazy way to think.
0: And you you talk of imbuing the people you train with journalistic standards, and yet we've seen the proliferation of of, of a lot of fake news, And um, and if you want to distinguish fake news from just, Bad news, mm. uh, which may not be uh, as malicious, yeah. but uh, is just incompetent. How, how do um, we get standards back into the industry and how do peop- consumers know that what they're consuming right. is for it's, real? It's
1: a very good question. The answer to that is that in a world of free press, there is no fake news, there's everything. And we're not used to a world of everything. We're used to a world where we were spoon-fed things and we sort of accepted them. So, so few people owned presses that obviously anything you read in the New York Times was it's the truth. So few people had broadcast licenses that obviously anything on CNN was the truth. And in some ways, our experience with a free press goes back 500 years. And over 500 years, we developed kind of a, an institutional um inoculation against free press against fake news so when you went to the supermarket and you saw a tabloid that said 500 pound boy found on mars you didn't go home screaming to your wife going i can't believe that they have that kid on mars you want
0: oh, right. <laughs> and, and yet that too was accelerated in the 20th century I mean if you go back to the 19th century the the press was very partisan yeah great. it was uh, right we it,
1: like a robust the the more robust the more fake news the better and, you know, the, the expression, the, the best antidote for bad free speech is more free speech. The best antidote for bad free press is more free press. And this notion that we have to, you know,
0: educate people to in, standards. I mean, to me, this is a lot of crap. You talk about disruption in the news business. Uh, you've now written about uh, the first Hollywood feature film shot and edited on an iPhone. Oh, yeah. What's yeah, the potential for disruption of the Hollywood e- business Enormous.
1: Model? I mean, when, when you go to the movies and you see that endless credit roll and you think, I mean, certainly special effects cost money. But to me, the greatest films are made don't have special effects. I'm not really a big fan of, you know, Hollywood crap. But filmmaking was like television, was in the hands of a very few studios, and they controlled, I mean, a major studio like Warner Brothers put out five or six movies a year. But with 3.5 billion people who have smartphones that shoot 4K, that edit, that add music, you can do anything with, there's gonna be an enormous disruption in the in the Hollywood business also, which I think is all
0: to the good. We're speaking with the new media evangelist, uh, Michael Rosenblum. I hope you like that title sure. that I gave you. Yeah. And so, uh, Michael, let's try to uh, wrap up. Uh, your course is called, uh, the one that you're going to be teaching at Oxford, Using Modern Media for the Common Good. Yes. That, that seems to be the problem that we've had with with modern media. It hasn't hmm. always been used uh, for the common good. Hardly ever. How is that done? Well, from my, of course, nobody really knows because it's a whole new field. Up
1: until now, the media has been controlled by major corporations that whose only interest was in profit. and. You make profit in the news business by showing scary, frightening news stories every night that terrify people. The greatest terrorists in the world work at CNN and NBC and Fox. So um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, change the general architecture of journalism by taking the power to decide what is covered out of the hands of corporations that want to make a profit and putting it into the hands of regular people with the caveat that they have to make a profit as well. So one of the experiments we've done is we went out to um, East New York and Brownsville, which is one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York and most underserved. And uh, I had a meeting at the local uh, junior high school there and uh, about 150 people came to the meeting, local people, and I said, who here thinks your communities get a terrible profile in local news? Of course, all they do is cover murders and fires and robberies, everybody raised their hand. And I said, who here would like to do a different kind of news journalism, tell different stories, they all raised their hand. And I said, who here has a smartphone? Everybody raised their hand. So I said, well, we have 150 cameras and 150 edit systems ready to go. So Lisa and I have been training these people to shoot and tell their own stories, and hopefully we'll be able to construct a profitable local television station driven not by NBC or CBS or corporations, but rather by the community and one in which the profits we put back into the community. That's the kind of stuff we're trying to do.
0: That sounds like a a great venture, and we wish you luck with that. Trying to revolutionize the new media. Michael Rosenblum, thanks very much for joining us. Great.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: To listen to more podcasts with John Metaxas, go to johnmetaxas.com.